Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for showing us how you feel about us in him, how you love us, how you long to possess us as your children, and how you accomplish that for our good. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your spirit within us causes us to cry out to you, would speak louder than this world, and indeed you would draw from us, you would elicit from us praise. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified in the worship of your people. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I said in our announcements, next week is Palm Sunday. And yet we are only a little over halfway through James's letter. So here's the plan. We're going to hit pause on James for the next two weeks, for Palm Sunday and for Easter Sunday. And we'll return to his letter for the season of Easter, picking up where we will leave off at the end of chapter four. This morning, we are at the beginning of chapter four. And in these first 12 verses, James is, is working on the assumption that his reader is concerned with possessing God as a friend, despite the fact that God does not always give us what we want. James is assuming that friendship with God is more important to you than the satisfaction of your desires. And working on this assumption, James asks in verse four, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he goes on, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And the assumption behind this question and, and, and statement is that the idea of being an enemy of God would, would trigger a person to reconsider or reorder their friendship with the world. James draws lines and he assumes his readers will want to identify with God and not with the world. And to be clear here, by pitting God against the world, James is not calling for a rejection of creation, right? As if we should look with suspicion at the tulips outside, opening up to reveal the brilliant red hiding underneath, like, it, like they're flytraps for Christians attempting to draw us away from God with their beauty. And we don't have to harden our hearts to the, to the creation or to the creatures that God himself called both good and very good. Instead, as the theologian Dan McCartney points out, the problem for God's people is neither delight in the physical world nor love for humanity and its fallenness, but an attitude toward either the physical or the social world that puts it in the place of God. The risk, therefore, is not in the world but in our hearts. The world and God become opponents when we elevate the world in our hearts to a place that only God should occupy. Tim Keller points out this is idolatry, right? Keller writes this, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. And an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, 
then I'll, find, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Right? And this could be anything, my brothers and sisters. It could be a job, a house, a child, a gadget, right? even something as personal as the realization of some intimate desire. An idol could be literally anything. Anything we look to in the world for definition, for fulfillment and significance. Whatever it is, by making it an idol, we define ourselves by it. We become synonymous with the thing we worship. This is what the psalmist in Psalm 115 is pointing out when he says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They make no sound in their throats. Those who make them are like them. So are all who trust in them. The idol becomes our identity until we're nothing more than the money in our bank or the expression of sexual desire. Therefore, when James draws lines between God and the world, he's drawing lines between God and the idols of our hearts those things in the world that define us, that we have elevated to a place that only God can occupy without destroying us. And James is saying that the human heart has room for only one God, and you have to choose. Will it be the world, or will it be God? It's a similar position as what Jesus taught in Matthew 6 regarding money. No one can serve two masters, he says, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. By drawing the line so clearly, James and Jesus are assuming that you'll desire to be called a friend of God, to possess him as your identity above anything else in this world. And here's why James assumes this. James assumes this because our identity in Christ is an identity that is received rather than earned. Everything else requires a fight to get what you want, and it gets ugly quickly, right? This is what James is pointing out in the first two verses. You want something badly enough, something that's become ultimate in your heart, that you become willing to murder in order to possess it. You desire something, so you resort to quarreling. You crave something, so you fight for it. Now, James is almost certainly speaking hyperbolically about murder here but he does so in order to point out that the spirit of murder is present in our attempts to secure the idols of our hearts, even if we never go so far as actually murdering someone on the way. The quarreling and fighting are a step in that direction. The need to resort to violence for some worldly idol betrays how closely we have come to identify with that thing. But it's the very nature of self-constructed identities to demand such a defense. They are so insecure that they require murder to be maintained. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has pointed out that the the problem with identities that are self-constructed is that they, they create extremely insecure people who need the world to agree with them and are forced to defend themselves when it inevitably doesn't, right? If you're the only one who gets to say what or who you are, then you can say whatever you want, but the world, indeed biology itself, may not agree with you. And then you're met with a problem because all around you are threats to your existence, contradictions 
of your self-declared identity become tantamount to acts of violence and you're forced to fight for yourself in order to prove and preserve your position. The world must agree with you in order for you to be secure in your identity. And so you go about forcing people to affirm it. But friendship with Christ requires no such aggression or defense. Come to him. Friendship with Christ sets our hearts and minds at rest because it's an identity that's received rather than earned. Here's what I mean. In verse five, James asked the rather intriguing question. Do you suppose it's for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? I call it an intriguing question simply because James says he's quoting scripture here, but his quotation is, cannot be found anywhere in our Bible. Nevertheless, what James is saying here holds true, that God gives the Holy Spirit as a gift to his children. And it's on account of the Holy Spirit that God is committed to us. God has an undying, uncompromising commitment to himself. And in order to show us mercy so that we might be identified with him, God gives himself to us. First on the cross, as Jesus died in our place, and then in the gift of the Holy Spirit, who now lives within Christians as a constant comfort and reminder of God's commitment to us. And in Romans 8, Paul says that the spirit Christians receive from God is the spirit of adoption. The spirit that reminds us that we are children of the living God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, Paul writes. You have received a spirit of adoption. And when we cry, Abba, Father, it's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. See, he's joined himself to us. And on account of his spirit living within us, he'll never abandon us. He's committed to himself by virtue of his spirit living within us, committed to us as well. But that's still only the identity of the Christian when viewed through the lens of adoption. Another way you might view the Christian identity is through the lens of marriage. And when we view Christian identity through the lens of marriage, our identity in Christ becomes all the more secure. For in verse 4, James calls us adulterers. In the choice between friendship with the world or with God, we oftentimes foolishly and grievously choose the world, don't we? It's a choice akin to adultery. Because God has chosen us as his bride, right? He has said, I'm committed to you until death do us part. But rather than let death separate us, Jesus defeated death and he rendered it powerless in order that God might yet raise us up from the grave to live with him forever. He has said, I will be yours and you will be my people. In the same way that a man and a woman join themselves and their families together through marriage. See, God has bound himself to us so that death shall not separate us and neither shall our adultery. After James accuses us of being adulterers, he says in verse 4, but God gives more grace. His love is greater than our adultery. His grace greater than our sin. The bond of our union with him is the blood of Christ and not our faithlessness. We are his children, his beloved, his friends. He gives us an identity that sets our hearts and minds at rest. 
Because he has fought for us, we have no need to resort to violence to get what we want or to prove who we are. He has settled that. He has given us all things. Rather, this is what God requires of those he calls his own. He requires humility. Submit yourselves to God, James writes in verse 7. Give up your striving for significance apart from him. Admit your proclivity towards sin, the devilish nature of your desires. Instead, submit to God who alone possesses the right to make demands on you, to define you. You may come out and say to God and to the world, this is who I am. This is who I want to be. But God has the right to demand a denial of every desire and self-determined identity. He has the right to demand you give up what you love in this world in order to follow him. But he makes no such demands because he's cruel. Precisely the opposite. He demands those things while at the same time offering you an identity that brings with it both security and peace. It brings with it rest from all your striving. You see, like a good friend, he desires your happiness. And he knows that you'll never be happy with your many attempts to define yourself. That will only make you deeply insecure. And you'll never be happy with your pursuit of even good things. Right? Make a good thing into an ultimate thing and it will only enslave you. If you're going to be a slave to anything, let it, to be a, let it be to a friend like Jesus. For in submitting to him and serving him, there's freedom, there's fulfillment, there's meaning. Indeed, in Christ, you become more who you truly wanted to be but had no idea. Turns out he knows us better than we know ourselves. Truly, he's a friend worth having. So when James says you can choose between the world and God, let's choose God. Submit ourselves to him. And in the end, he alone will raise us up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.